Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a warm day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and today I'm joined by Fabrizio Giordano. Now Fabrizio is the Managing Director at Headspace Group, a real estate company providing workspace to the creative, media and technology sectors. Um, Fabrizio, welcome. Great to have you on the program with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hannah. Absolute pleasure having you. Now, Fabrizio, this podcast first and foremost is all about leadership, and that's really coming under the microscope at the moment, isn't it, with COVID-19 and business leaders having to navigate their firms through this storm. Tell me, um, as for somebody in your industry, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's thrown up um, a whole range of challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, in, in, in reality, I think the entire nation is is, uh, is under a huge challenge, and I believe that we're all doing a, a great job in helping each other. I think I think um, I, I can see I can see everybody trying to be to be helpful. To be completely honest with you, um, as a, as an organization, we are trying to help our our customers and uh, and the people that we deal with on a daily basis, as well as with our employees, of course. Um, I, I believe uh, in the, these times are really a balancing act between what you can what you can give um, to help your clients and and what and and how you can actually keep your your company and your employees uh, together. Um, so so. Uh, we in in, the, in these days, um, in terms of like what we are doing for our customers, obviously um, uh, we we are, we are trying to talk to them as much as we can um, and, and trying to um, to to help them out in terms of um, of uh, of the neg- of, of the um, license agreement that they have with us. Um, of course, we, you know we we ourselves uh, pay rent. Therefore, uh, we it, it, needs to, it needs to be a sensitive conversation, if it makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And uh, that communication is so, so important, uh, not just for business leaders, but also their teams as well. And maintaining that communication as well and that effective um, sort of work pattern, I suppose, it's really down to the culture that business leaders have instilled in the build up to this, isn't it? Um, Just allowing people to sort of take their own reign a little bit, be self-motivated, take on their own sort of leadership in a way, but also just know that they have their business leader, their CEO, their managing director there at the other end of the phone should they need them yes absolutely i think um i would i would go with uh, with uh, an idea by jock willing um uh in terms of leadership uh, in regards to what you just said which is uh, the, the the chain of command goes up and down and the communication needs to be absolutely spotless uh, and spot on uh, going up and going down the the, the chain of command uh, meaning that everybody needs to take uh, full responsibility uh, of their own communication. So it's not only up to the leaders actually to communicate well with their own uh, followers, if it makes sense, uh, or, or employees, if, if it is a company, uh, but it's also up to uh, the the, empl- the employees to communicate efficiently with with their leaders. And I think. Um, for, from a leader perspective, uh, the way the way to to communicate that is to show how how 
how to do it and to go first, really, at all times. Um, so to, to basically do what you preach. Exactly. That leading by example and leading from the top is so, so important, um, especially uh, at the moment. But I think it's important for business leaders to also remember that they do have their own limitations and they're not necessarily going to get every single decision right, are they? And I think, do you, do you think some people maybe are afraid of making mistakes too much when they're occupying leadership roles? Um maybe some people are i think in reality we're all humans and whether we are leaders or followers we are always leaders uh, in some aspects of our lives um whether in family in some in some friendships in some situations and even in businesses uh, a lot of a lot of uh, uh, employees are leaders themselves because uh, they 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 lead their own uh, their own teams or even they lead their own negotiations or they lead their own buildings, even if they maybe don't have um, uh, employees under uh, to, to manage, they, they still lead tasks and they still lead things. So, so I think everybody is, is, is a leader sometimes, certainly in, in, in his or her own life. Um, and, uh, and it's really important to understand that we, we are all human. We, we all make decisions based on hopefully facts. And, and, but these still are decisions. So we, we obviously can get wrong in our decisions. And this is, you know, this is the nature of being human. Um, and, and we, it's important that we as, as leaders take decisions as best of our abilities, taking consideration the information given. That's, that's all. Exactly. And we've talked about um, your own uh, sort of leadership style quite a bit there, um, about how you like to give employees a little bit of free reign to sort of take on leadership themselves. What would you say are some of the influences behind your own style of leadership then, Fabrizio? Um, I would say probably uh, at early age, I've been exposed to neurolinguistic programming by Richard Bandler and John Grinder. Um, very cool technology of communication. Technology means um, not not not, uh, not computer stuff, but uh, uh, human human technology, brain how the paradigm works, and um, and 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 how we process information and how we see reality. Um, I was in my early twenties when I when I discovered that, um, and I think um, being a very analytical uh, uh, technology of communication, uh, it helped me to understand um, the the other people perspective and, and how that is important for this, the art of listening, the art of understanding an other person. And it's a kind of an art and a science in a way, because uh, there are certain things that are in a way um, reproducible and replicable, um, uh, it, it, same as a kind of a scientific process in a way, but it's also an art because um, obviously it, it requires a level of sensitivity uh, and it adapts in different situations. Um, so, so definitely that is a, as a, uh, as an inspiration, as a guide for me, um, and a few other, a few other. I mentioned earlier, Jock Willink, who's I'm not sure you're familiar with with, uh, with the man, but um, he, he was a commander uh, in a, in a um, as a SEAL commander, mm-hmm. American Navy SEAL commander, um, and and obviously, you know, he, when you are on on, I have never been obviously, but when you are in war. The, the kind of the, the ultimate level of, of leadership in terms of responsibility and in terms of what, what, what is the stake, uh, uh, really. Um, 
so so you know the guy was was making decisions that either saved or killed lives so so it's a lot of responsibility um and uh, and he when he came back he kind of created a program for leadership and he wrote a book called um, extreme ownership which is actually really good i would suggest it to anybody and it's talking about this you know the chain of command up and down that we discussed earlier so definitely he's he's um He's definitely one of my go-to in terms of leadership. Mm. It's a really interesting example there, and I do like how you talk about that chain of command as well. If we think about the chain of command just for a moment, do you think that great leaders who are going to be going to the top of that chain are just born with certain qualities, or do you think that they have qualities that they develop throughout their career and they work their way up rather than being ready-made for the top? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I think um, there is, as, as every skill, um, you, you are naturally born with it, but then if you don't really educate yourself, if you don't pursue that path, it, it just kind of, it's not really relevant. Um, so, I, I, you know, you, you, you have to put the work in, you have to understand uh, other point of views, and you have to specialize into something in order to be great at it. You might have uh, an inclination, uh, but you know Usain Bolt had to work really hard to be Usain Bolt. It didn't really like you know came out from you know his home and start running really fast and faster than everybody else. He probably had to you know spend hours and hours and hours uh, uh, running and 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 coaching and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So so I think definitely um, you, you need to work on on skills to make them relevant. Otherwise, they're just skills that you have that you will never use. I think um, that's quite an interesting point that you make there, uh, Fabrizio, because it goes back to this idea about um, employees having free reign, doesn't it? Because I think in order to allow them to do that and to develop and flourish, they also have to have a little bit of a hunger and a self-motivation that they have from the beginning, don't they? And that can then develop to help them throughout their career as they essentially become the next uh, crop of leaders. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Mm. So I'm running out of time, uh, Fabrizio, but before we do uh, wrap things up here, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Headspace Group and what you really hope to achieve in that time, particularly beyond COVID-19 and coming out the other side of that. I think uh, we will come out the other side. You know, as a human race, we always did. So, I, I don't. I don't see why this time will be different. Um, whether it's going to take uh, a longer, or shorter time that than, than forecast, we really don't know. And and what what my message is to to everybody that I talk to, to my clients, to my coworkers, uh, and 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 to everybody, is that at the moment for the the, the the information given, we just can plan on a monthly basis because we can't. We just don't know. Uh, obviously, I'm not, I'm not a doctor and I don't know how this is going to be. I'm not even an epidemiologist. So anybody specialized that can forecast. And I, I don't even know if there is anybody can forecast how long this is going to last. At the moment, there hasn't been. Um, so I, I don't think that making very, very long-term plans makes sense at this very moment, at least in my humble opinion. Um, but I think we should focus in the, in the short term and take it as, as, as it comes and, and uh, be united and be together to, to overcome this, this issue. And, uh, you know, hopefully, it's, you know, in the, in the next few months, three, four months, we're going to come out of this situation and, and gradually go back 
to, to, to our offices to work or, or even, you know, some people will, 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 will stay home a little bit longer than others, but still be active and, and the economy will kind of restart again. Um, and I think that in terms of 12 months, well, again, I really don't know, but, uh, um, I am, I am hopeful that, um, in the, in six months from now, uh, we are gonna, we're going to be building something greater than 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 there was before COVID, and and we're going to do that with the knowledge that we gain in these months, which is really 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 um, a lot. Because I think a lot of people are put in a tough spot, to make tough decisions, and learn really fast to adapt to a situation that has totally unprecedented. And I think that. All of us are changing a little bit the way we work, the way we think, the way we prioritize our work and life and personal aspects of our lives. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, but I, I hope that this is going to be, you know, perceived as a good thing in 10 years' time. Uh, and, and say like, you know, and, and it's going to be perceived as a spark that made, that made something new happen for the world. I see exactly where you're coming from. Um, it, it, it is true. It's a very, very challenging time for business because it's very difficult to look at the long term and really be proactive and working toward it because it's so uncertain as to really what's going to happen. Um, it's very much a case of businesses being reactive at the moment, having to roll with the punches with what's going on. And I think it would be fantastic, Fabrizio, if um, actually in a few months' time when the situation becomes a little clearer and we see that fog lifting, if we could have you back on the programme to perhaps look at this retrospectively and just see how things have panned out and see how some of those hopes have played out as well. Um, But for now, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me for the benefit of the listeners. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been fantastic having you, Fabrizio. Thank you. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team, and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people, it was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world. Almost, I'd been—I was a Middlesex player. I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a Test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, To have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a a huge Mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than Mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know I think it's easy to forget how 
how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing 
a team. Uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um 
And I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think... I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I yeah. actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them. 
um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So, if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there. I mean to say. But whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much. Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it what, what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important 
step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.